the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I'm excited to have JP Pokluda back on the podcast. I think this is the second time. We're going to talk chat, GPT, and preaching, the preaching process he uses. I've been asking a lot of communicators about this. I think communication is a superpower, particularly in light of the advances of AI. Because um, you know, ChatGPT is okay, but hey, where's the human touch? Gen Z Church and the virtues and vices of leaders. We're going to talk about all that and a lot more. And so grateful. Make sure you check out today's partners. Glue is revolutionizing the way your church communicates. If you want to start texting, they have a free service. Go to get.glue.us/texting to sign up today. And Serve HQ is changing how you can serve your volunteers. So check out servehq.church to learn more. Well, I'm glad to have JP back. His name is actually Jonathan Pocluta, but everybody calls him JP. He is the lead pastor of Harris Creek Baptist Church in Waco, Texas, former leader of The Porch, where he saw the ministry grow from 150 to more than 7,000 young adults. I was there one, I think it was a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night they do that. And yeah, you could not get a parking spot. It was incredible. He's the author of several best-selling books on adulting and now has a brand new one that we'll talk about as well. And if you're new to the podcast, really glad you're here. Here's what we try to do. We try to help you thrive in life and leadership. Sometimes we bring you business leaders. I know a lot of you are church leaders. And then sometimes we bring church leaders to business leaders. So we've got a diverse audience listening, and we're so glad to be able to serve you. Uh, one of the ways that you can help, because we bring this to you for free, is to give us a shout out on social. If you enjoy this or any past episode, uh, just mention us on social. I'm Kerry Newhoff on Instagram. Uh, my team and I track that. And if we can, we will repost you. And then also uh, tell a friend, uh, just share this episode or this podcast. Let a friend know because when the podcast grows, we get permission to do this over and over and over again. And I love doing it. So uh, did you know that engagement is crucial for guiding people on their faith journeys? But unfortunately, in today's world, a lot of pastors feel like they're losing touch. Well, if you've ever sent an important email and notice a 27% or 43% open rate, or you're scratching your head trying to figure out TikTok, you know what I mean. That's where Glue's free texting service comes in. So think about this. Texting has a 98% open rate. Mm -hmm. It has response time that averages about 90 seconds. Plus, you text every day, so does everybody you're trying to reach, so you're already a pro. Compare that to a 20% or maybe even if you're a pro, 40% email open rate. Texting is the future. So it can help you do things, not just like advertising your services, but build a stronger prayer culture, welcome new visitors, and a whole lot more. And Glue has a free service. So make sure you check it out. It takes less than five minutes to set up. Go to get.glue.us slash texting. Just say that one more time, get.glue.us slash texting. You can sign up for free today. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes of this episode as well. And I talk to leaders and they say volunteering is in a crisis. Well, why not make it easier with a resource 
that can help you serve your volunteers better, onboard them better, train them better, recruit them better, and a whole lot more. Serve HQ is what I'm talking about. It's a simple video training course that helps you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training, or if you're like, can't even think about it, they have a video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people, and their easy-to-use automation tools make onboarding new volunteers and church members fast, easy, and the best part, consistent. So you've got a well-trained group, well-mobilized group across the board. So check it out. Go to servehq.church. That's servehq.church. And now, without further ado, my conversation with JP Pokluda. JP, welcome back. Hey, Gary. Thank you so much for having me on. I love your podcast. It's an honor to be a guest. Well, I appreciate you as a leader. It's been good to hang out in real life and hang out online and text and that kind of stuff. But I think last time we caught up here on the podcast, it was mid-pandemic. And you said some stuff. I remember that episode just got a lot of downloads as leaders shared it. You were talking about redoing your messages for YouTube. I think it was one of your children who said, Dad, that's too boring or yeah. uh, whatever, right? Always right. always the kids who are, are the best thing. But I'd love to know, you know, now we're back into a more normal world. Uh, what are you learning about preaching and reaching people? Have you pivoted back? Like, what are you doing yeah. with your teaching that might be different than it was four years ago? Or did you just revert back to normal? Yeah. So what happened was in the pandemic, my, my kids loved watching these YouTubers and it was the, the flash frames, the quick movement, you know, the entertainment, the words on screen. And as churches move into the homes, I'm like, what can we learn from that? And so I, I, uh, contracted with them, some YouTubers just to have them advise us and coach us and to see what we can do during the pandemic to stream into homes. And so now people have returned. And this is interesting because I met about this this morning. So at Harris Creek, at our at our uh, campus here in Waco, we are at capacity. And so we have 1,100 seat auditorium and we're running three services and they're about 120 uh, to 125% full. Actually wow. on some, some Sundays, 150% full. So we'll have... Um, uh, overflow for four five hundred in overflow on some Sundays into the, to the commons, which is which is our lobby. So we're we're navigating those space issues. So here's the conversation that I had with the elders this morning: is can we ask people who are not in need of kids ministry to meet in their homes together, though, and stream the services? And then have lunch afterwards and really spend the majority of Sunday together. Like, would that be an experience that would be conducive to, you know, the assembly that Jesus had in mind, the kind of home church idea? And so as we think about growth, we, we're exploring building. We bought some land. You know, the, the cost of construction is just so high right now. Uh-huh. Like, is there a smarter way to use technology? And so that's kind of the first answer to your question. And then I can go into, you know, what we're doing to raise up communicators and preachers and thinking about yeah, those so, kinds of things. So let's go there. But just to clarify, so you're saying watch the service at home if you That's don't right. have need of kids ministry and then gather later for like a meal or something like that. Would that be in homes or church-based or what would that so, look like? So we have a small group model. We call them life groups, you know, com- community groups, home groups, cell groups, different people call them different things, but small group model. And so any member of Harris Creek is in a small group. And so they're meeting, you know, if they're, if they're married, they're, they're meeting with four to six other couples on a consistent basis. If they're single, they're meeting with six to 12 other single 
friends on a consistent basis. That's their life group. And so I'm asking the question, hey, what if we had life groups meet on Sunday in homes together? So you would say, hey, let's have all of our life group go to John's house. You know, John has a theater room or a media room. We'll go up there. We'll all watch the service together. And then we'll all share a meal. We'll do a potluck in the in the kitchen afterwards. We'll bring something and we'll eat, all eat. We'll discuss the service, see what we're learning and experience community. And I'm you, there's a cost. You're always choosing your problems in leadership. There's certainly a cost to that model. But I think for some people in the stage of life that they're in, that could be more conducive to uh, um, a discipleship church experience than even coming and gathering corporately, you know, with with the other members. You know, as someone whose kids are grown, that's actually rather attractive. And we're doing a version of that right now. We'll still attend in person, although we do have capacity issues right now too. Um, But we are sharing a meal and then doing small group on Sundays, which is really cool. Okay, so then, and tell me, like, are you still doing a message straight to uh, video for YouTube or you're streaming live or what are you doing for the message on Sunday morning? Yeah, all the above. So we're streaming live to YouTube, to Facebook, to uh, the Harris Creek app, harriscreek.org. So we're doing, we're streaming, we're doing the two morning services. Our our evening service is is predominantly college, uh, college service right now. We're reconsidering that as well. But, you know, the most, something that's a distinctive of Harris Creek is we want to be a communicator school. So a lot of churches will bring people in, communicator training school, churches will bring people in and they'll train up the resources and they're afraid to lose them. Uh, They'll, you know, they'll hold them tightly. Hey, don't poach my people. I really want to be a sending church. And traditionally that means a planting church, but no, I'm more interested in church revitalization because I'm down here in the Bible Belt. There's a church on every corner. And, uh, you know, if somebody already has a building and a, and a congregation and a people and a gathering space, what if we sent leaders into those places? And so all that means is losing resources to the right people that will give them a to- authority and autonomy to lead uh, as they've learned. And so that doesn't mean that we have the, the edge on leadership. Um, I just, we've paid a lot of dummy tax along the way. I've learned a lot of things from people much smarter than me. And so we want to raise up these leaders. And so people are moving here uh, that desire to learn about preaching and teaching. And then they kind of go into this preaching leadership school all in hopes to not be planted per se, but actually to get a job at another existing church, hopefully in a position of leadership, like a lead pastor job or a senior pastor job. That's a, that's a great approach. How are you developing them? Are you putting them on the main stage, youth stages? What are you doing? That's right. So it's, it's on the job training, as you can imagine with yeah. ministry. So, so much of what they're doing is in small groups um, with pastoral care, learning how to counsel through the scriptures and lead through the scriptures. We, we gather every uh, Tuesday as, as an entire staff where, you know, there, some of that's a, a Q&A, they ask questions. And then on the, on the communication front, every Monday we start in a room. So I'm an extrovert. So I'm not this kind of like lock me in a room with, with commentaries. Like I love to prepare with people. There's about a dozen proverbs that say wisdom comes from the counsel of many. And so I want that to kind of carry my preparation or my the, the sermon prep process. So we gather on Monday and we just talk about the message. Hey, what are we talking about? What scriptures speak into this? What is the passage? How do we want to break down this passage? What's an opening image? I follow an outline. Um, it's image, subject, need, preview, 
text, summary, conclusion. And so those are the first words that go on the Word document. And then we begin to fill in those blanks collectively. And then the communicator, let's say it's me, I leave there and then I just kind of kind of think on that, see the world through that lens. And then uh, on Thursday, I write the message. It's done by Thursday at 2.30. Thursday at 3, I step on stage and I give the message to that panel of people, those, those uh, developing communicators for grade 1 to 100, 70 is passing. And so they, they have the outline in front of them. They take notes on the outline. They then give me a grade and why, and then we do a play-by-play, page-by-page feedback. And then I take that outline that they've spoken into and I, and I reshape it and then preach it three times on Sunday. Now, if one of them is going, they step into that process. So I will preach about half of the Sundays and I will give away the other half to them. If they've never taught before in their life, Carrie, of course, we're going to start them on a smaller stage and, and give them other opportunities, like you said, in students mm-hmm. or, or just the, you know, the nature of, of the gathering. There's, there's no shortage of opportunities to speak. But as they grow as a communicator, they will have an opportunity on Sunday to, to teach to the, the thousands that are here in person, but then also the thousands that are watching online. Wow. That's a really interesting process. I've heard others do a similar thing, um, but that idea of what is what does Tim Lucas call it? Tim, do you know Tim from Liquid Church? He'll call it uh, Gospel Hour or something like that, where okay. he does a very similar thing. And like you're being critiqued. Craig Rochelle has a variation of that yeah. process. Yeah, and, Craig and I've talked about it uh, at length recently, even. So yeah, yeah. And what do you, what are the benefits? Like how much better typically does a message get? I guess there's twofold to that. One, you know, it's going to be evaluated. So you probably do a better job up front, right? Like, okay, I'm yep. going to have to at least get a 70%. I love that it's 70, not 90, because yeah. it's hard to hit nine out of 10 every week. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, what does that do to the creative process? And also, do you think the quality of the messages you're preaching? So I've been doing this for about 10 years. And uh, people initially have been very resistant to it. And so if you've never preached a sermon just to a a fairly empty room, but just a panel of critics for a grade, uh, you know, it it is a little nerve wracking. And especially if you tend to be a procrastinator, you have a little bit of a false deadline because it's like it has to be ready days before it really needs to be ready. Uh There's not a chance. I mean, there just really is not a chance. And I've never seen it. And I've now done it hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, it's, there's not a chance it doesn't get better. I mean, the mm-hmm. sermon is going to get better. It just, mm-hmm. it just always has it, it, not one single time. Can I think of a time it didn't get better? Uh, it's a simple idea or, you know, nine minds better than one operating in isolation, you know, nine people. I have older women there. I have younger women there. I have single people there. I have married people there. So different life stages, uh, different, you know, challenges, different age groups, all the, all the, demi- all the different demographics. And they're speaking into the message, making sure that we hit, you know, kind of all of the different life stages that people are walking in, all of the different challenges that they're carrying into the room. So they're there in addition to uh, the, the communicators that we're training up. So those communicators are learning, uh, those preachers and teachers are learning just by the feedback that other people are getting. Two, it enforces humility. And so yeah. for the lead communicator, like he's, you know, he's walking in there and, or I, I'll say I'm walking in there and, and these, you know, people who work for somebody who works for somebody who works for me is, is just about to 
<laughs> you know, just tear me apart. And, uh, and, and on some days they do. And it's, it's a humbling thing that I, and a sobering thing that I think is actually helpful. Uh, they they've helped with creative illustrations. Hey, I don't like that illustration. Sometimes it's a, Hey, let's move that here. I think your closer is actually a better opener. Hey, I don't know that that's what that verse is actually saying. I know this commentary over here says that, but I think a better understanding of that verse is this, those kinds of things, you know, they, they go through that process. And so it always gets better. The challenges uh, that you're, you're choosing with this model, honestly, is you become dependent on it. And so when you have to write a message without it, you feel a little bit like you're flying blind because it's like, all right, when's my run through? And you kind of organize the whole week with the run through. And it also, I won't say it takes more time, but it takes more time of other people who are not the primary communicator. So how, how do you not let that blow up your Friday and Saturday? Like, are you able to usually incorporate that Thursday by the time you head home for dinner or how does that impact your workflow? No, I, I said it, um, you know, I set it on a shelf at Thursday. I don't touch it. I just let that feedback, I just, I kind of leave it there and I go on about my life and I pick it up on Saturday for an hour and I, and I see what stuck from that time. You know, the, the right, I want the right things to stick. And so I took good notes too, but I just like, all right, what stayed with me? Uh, and, and then I make those adjustments and then redo it. Uh, are you still doing a direct to YouTube message or did that switch when everything went back live? We are. We're still doing a direct to YouTube message. And when do you film that? Oh, oh, maybe I don't understand the question. We're, oh, no, I'm sorry, I meant we're streaming. like uh, you're streaming direct to YouTube, but are you doing right. a separate like edited oh, no. fast version? Okay. No, we're not. I mean, that has, that has turned into... Um, you know, what's happened since last we talked is is reels, right? Yeah, they've really yeah. they've really blown up, and so we've we take those those snippets and we we cut them down to try to you know have the big teachable moments and make it onto reels, and then we push those through YouTube Shorts, TikTok, yeah. and and Instagram. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So that kind of took care of itself, didn't it? Yeah, I guess in that way. I mean, I don't think it's a bad idea to take the message. Uh, some of it was the nature of, um, you know, our, our video editing resources. We lost a guy that mm-hmm. was was just really masterful in, in his ability to edit those. But then he he moved on. He's still here. He still attends, but he he's no longer in that position. And so some of it's just the 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 demands of the day, as you know. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You only have so much time. You only have so much energy, and you've got a lot of momentum. Anything else you're changing or morphing as we speak in your model? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, th- I'm asking what is the role that technology is to play in this? And I know that, yeah. that you've been at the forefront of asking that, Carrie. I know that many leaders are asking that. I'm, I'm looking at VR. Uh, I'm, I'm watching chat GBT and AI. And I'm saying, okay, all of these things hitting for such a time as this or at this time seem to have implications for the church. And I'm just trying to be prayerful and understanding what they are. I don't want to be behind the curve, but saying that right now feels like you already are, you know, because yeah. it's, it's moving fast. That train is moving fast. I mean, by the time this airs or secondarily, by the time someone listens to it months down the road, this could be a dated yeah. conversation. But for those so, who are listening yeah. in real time, have you tried chat GPT? What are you seeing as possibilities, um, you oh, know, man. strengths, it, weaknesses? I'm starting to use it. Yeah. And really finding it helpful. We can talk about that more, but 
you know, as a creative, it also feels threatening, right? Yeah, it feels like, um, and this may be so naive to say out loud, but it feels like as big as the internet. I mean, it, yeah. it, it feels like that level of discovery. Uh, uh-huh. I had it write a sermon. So not not one I had any intentions of preaching, but just to see of its capabilities. I said, hey, would you write a, a three-point sermon on this verse? Yeah. And it just spit it out in 20 seconds. And I thought, man, that is, wow. Uh, I I think it could be really helpful right now in terms of, of when you get kind of creative block. Mm-hmm. So something to get you over that. You know, I, I, uh, I'm... I'm always hopeful that the the creative's going to win because you know they're we're going to figure out how to to use the things that uh, are a threat to creativity and use them to further creativity and that's what I'm believing about for ChatGPT and and AI in general. But you know, I <laughs> I could go to some weird places. I don't know where you want to go on this podcast, but I mean, well, there's, we can, there's we a can lot go of to risk. some weird places. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm happy sure. to do it. I mean, I'm seeing its utility right now. To timestamp this, we're uh, toward the end of February 2023 when we're recording this, where I'm using it for brainstorming, first drafts, and ideas. That's sort of the three big buckets. Um, brainstorming meetings, I'll give you an example. So I often have to title posts I'm writing or emails I'm writing or whatever. And we've all sat in creative meetings where we're like, all right, let's come up with a good title. And a half hour later, you've got a couple of mediocre titles, literally. And you can tell chat GPT, uh, write, give me 10 headlines for a blog post on cynicism and church leaders that will convert well and rank in Google. Boom. Like you say, 18 seconds later, you've got 10. And whether you use one of the 10 or not, I really love having those prompts because I'm like, oh, I never thought about calling it that or never just that thought never occurred to me. So I might not use one of those, but it will launch me into something that I think could really convert. Or like, then you come down to two headlines and it's like, okay, uh, which one has a better chance of converting in search? And it'll tell you. So you're not guessing. You know, it's yeah. almost like your Thursday night thing, but an AI version of it, Thursday sure. afternoon thing, but an yeah, AI version right. of it. And that's I've done the example. write a blog post on X, and honestly, it's pretty banal right now. Yeah, but I don't know yeah. what chat GPT4 is going to be, but it might give me yeah. ideas I haven't heard, and then I turn it into my own words. That's, That's about right. as far as I've gotten with it. I have asked it just yesterday, actually. I'm like, uh, tell me about Carrie Newhoff. And it was yeah. actually really good and really bad because yeah. it got my date of birth wrong. Yeah. Um, did it for my wife. It said she was born yeah. in the Netherlands. I'm like, where did yeah. you get that? There's nothing in her record. She was born in yeah. the US, lived in Canada, got that wrong. It got um, a friend of mine, It got it. he says he wrote a book. He hasn't written a book. I mean, yeah. so you can't rely on it for veracity yeah. at this point. But uh, I mean, that's a that's it's only what reliable I'm using as the, it for as the data inputs. You know, <laughs> yeah, Google exactly. says Google says I'm 33 years old, so I, I wish Google was right. But are you gonna roll sadly, with that? I would roll. With <laughs> yeah, that. I'll just it's what Google says. It's got to be true. Yeah, it's actually ChatGPT has me two years younger than I am, which is great. Yeah. It's like okay, but it's not true. So. Yeah. Um, what, any other thoughts about AI preaching chat GPT? We can, we can go down that rabbit trail. I mean, I think the bottom line is it it is a game changer and we have to be aware of it. And even, I mean, it, it, it it's going to have overlap into our, our craft. And, uh, I don't think we need to be 
threatened by it. I mean, we, you know, we've read the back of the book and, and we know where this goes and, yeah. and God is sovereign over all of these things. Uh, but if there's a way, I have such a redemptive theology. And so yeah. anything that can be used for evil, uh, it can be used for good. And I'm trying to, trying to run in front of these things and say, okay, how can we use these for good while remaining above reproach and, and use these tools to further the gospel and build the kingdom? Yeah. Yeah. So do you use it in sermon prep or you're just experimenting right now? I've just experimented. I used it yeah. in sim- similar to how you have. Um, I was writing a blog on Valentine's Day and used it to kind of speak into that. To And it, it provided some facts. I was able to, oh, it's like, oh, that's a helpful line. Okay. So let me, let me take that idea and work it into this, into this blog. And like I said, I had it, you know, just to, just really right now trying to understand what his capabilities are. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, but I think you're right. There's an inevitability to it. My, uh, I never knew my grandfather well, who was, was from Holland, but my father said he was born in 1899. So, uh, he never liked to use tractors on his farm. And the reason was he thought they weren't good for the environment. He thought they weren't good for the soil. So he used horses until maybe the sixties or seventies. And probably 60s, because he died in the 70s. You know what? He was right, but he was also wrong. Because yeah. nobody uses horses today, yeah. right? So you can fight it, or you can figure out how to cooperate with it. You can develop theology around it, and you can yeah. hopefully use it for good. And I agree, you know where it's going. Here, go ahead. You have a well, thought? Francis Chan has a children's book about a tractor that they didn't know how to turn on. And so they would push the tractor. And it and it's a metaphor for the church, as I recall. It's been a long time since I read it, but in one day, someone found the manual to the tractor, and they were able to turn it on and see that it actually works for you. It's not this thing that you have to push uphill. And and uh, and so, as you share that story, that's what I think about: is is you know how do we how do we have these tools work for us and uh, use them just to further the mission that we're already on? That's a really great metaphor. I haven't read that book. Um, so this is your first time as a lead pastor, right? Kind of. I, I Towards the end of Watermark, I was playing a lead pastor role in uh, my time at Watermark. And so we had, we were a multi-site at multiple campuses. I was there at the, yeah. the, the, you know, if it's okay to say primary or campus, yeah, the, the, the Dallas the first, location, the first yeah. campus. And uh, I was playing more of a, of a lead pastor role there in transition. What was your biggest surprise becoming a lead pastor? I think that, um, you know, the layer of protection is gone. And mm-hmm. so if someone's going to be on 60 minutes, it's going to be you. And so there's, as I drove <laughs> down 35, which is the interstate here, uh, moving from Dallas to Waco, it just felt like there was a, a covering that was being lifted off of me. And um, that doesn't sound super spiritual, but that is just in my in my fear and insecurity is what I felt in that moment. It just felt like, oh, I'm, I am walking out of, uh, uh, from beneath my, my protection and, um, man, you know, the responsibility, the, the weight of that, we stepped into some debt. And so mm-hmm. even that, I just felt that on my shoulders, the weight of that debt, like it was the first time ever that I had preached underneath debt. And it, and I understand the temptation that people would feel, um, by, you know, not wanting to upset someone or to keep donors or those kinds of things. And I just didn't want to fall into that trap. I wanted to be faithful, but I was seeing some of that temptation for the very first time. 
So a lot, I appreciate you sharing that. And anybody who hasn't sat in a senior leadership seat before, whether that's in ministry or CEO of a company, uh, that's a very common response. And I came by it honestly. I mean, I started when I was 30, so I almost never didn't have this job in one capacity or another. But yeah, there is that, like, I, I know one woman has said publicly when she became a lead pastor, she felt like she had to write a note of apology to every pastor she served under going, I didn't get it until now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. I relate to that for sure. I've, I've yeah. apologized to a few people and just like, man, I didn't, I did not understand. And I empathize for the, for, uh, you know, leader, a senior leader I worked under many times now. Cause I was like, Oh, I remember him having this frustration that I'm right in the middle of right now. And now it makes sense. Yeah. So a lot of Christian organizations, churches, even companies, they struggle to reach the next generation. You've done so well in that area. What do you believe are some of the most effective ways to engage and disciple young adults moving forward and maybe how that's changed in the last 10 years? Yeah, I give it to you in one word. And and I don't love this word because it's been overused. And as I say this word, I think people will think they know what it means and some will be right, but I think, I think some uh, will mean something different than what I'm implying when I use this word. And so uh, authenticity uh, is a word. If, if you want me to put more synonyms around it, transparency would be another. And there's so much fake in, in church today. And some of that comes from production. Some of that comes from a person. Some of that comes from even the, the pressures. Uh, There you go. It's a good three P alliteration for, uh, pastor, well done. Well done. Production pastor. person, uh, the pressures of like debt yeah. and those kinds of things. Yeah. And I just like, man, this church is such an awful hobby. Like this is not a hobby. Like if we if we were just looking for a hobby, like we should go race remote control cars or fly airplanes or 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 you know whittle or something. But but church is an awful hobby. And so why get into the church and play games? And so with me, it's like, man, what you see is what you get. Like, this is, this is who I am. It's who I am on the stage, off the stage. I don't, I don't want to manage perception. I don't want to pretend to be someone I'm not, you know, and, and that for whatever reason, I think has attracted the, the generation behind me, if you will. And, and I've just, that's, that's the only offense I know to run. And I didn't come into this with a lot of church baggage. I grew up Catholic. And when I became a Christian, um, I, I because I wasn't a Christian when I was Catholic, just meaning I wasn't pursuing Christ. I didn't have a relationship with Christ. I didn't go to church in college. And then I was at a club 22 years ago where I where I began to hear the gospel and, and understand the grace of the gospel. And when I placed my faith in Jesus, you know, it was just like, hey, I just erased the whiteboard. Like my deconstruction looked like, hey, I'm gonna forget everything I know and just start over and start to read the Bible like I'm on a deserted island and try to f- understand who God is in this. And as I, you know, that that just kind of allowed me to be, I think, at a healthy place with God and understanding of the scriptures and a biblical worldview. And so I'm just saying, hey, this is what God says. This is what I think he means. If you disagree with me, you know, as, as long as it's not that, you know, Jesus rose from the grave. Hey, there's a place for you here. Uh, we can we can still be friends, and I'm going to continue to read this book and try to explain it based on the best of my ability. You know, and and be yeah. be me, be who God called me to be. 
Yeah. Do you think, I mean, again, we've timestamped this episode, Asbury, the revival there is still going on. Um, you actually went there. Do you think that's a preview into Gen Z church or do you think it's more of an anomaly? It's really too early to say, but I thought, hey, that's kind of an interesting question. Yeah. I'll timestamp it even more and just say, you know, we we had uh, celebrated Ash Wednesday today and um, we had Stations of the Cross and you know, I'm a 144-year-old Baptist church in the country just for context. That does not that, do that kind of thing on yeah, a regular it was, basis. Right? It was 6.30 in the morning, 6.30 a.m. And, uh, and it was just all reflective, no frills whatsoever, no, no band, no, no speaker. You walked in, you grabbed a sheet of paper and it was a self-guided tour and a self-guided, you know, stations of the cross and reflective time you received ashes and, and you could take communion. And I, it was all young people, man. I couldn't believe it at six 30 in the morning. Now we are 6 30 near, in the morning. we're near Baylor university, obviously. And and I, I couldn't believe how many college students were here this morning. I just not, not what I was expecting. And then I had that thought about Asbury. And uh, I do remember a, a, an article I read probably about a decade ago. The, the headline was, um, uh, I think it was millennials are getting high in church, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and they were just talking about how the next generation, the, the play on words there, high on church was like liturgy, high church. Yeah. And, and so there's something about the reflective nature of, of days past that I do see a longing for in this generation. And Carrie, I I think what coincides with it is confession and repentance. Mm -hmm. And so with that authenticity and that transparency comes, you know, out of that comes a, a real dealing with sin and saying, hey, this is what I've done. And where I think we spent uh, a generation in secrecy under the banner of confidentiality. So we called it confidentiality, mm. but I think it was actually secrecy. And and we were permitted to keep things to ourselves or to ourselves and one other person. And uh, what I think is going to happen in the church is you're going to see this purging of, hey, this is what I've done and I do not care who knows. And, uh, and, and I just, my God is bigger. And I think there's something really pure about that, that excites me, but that's what I'm seeing wow. in, in the next generation. And some of what even I observed there in Asbury. Yeah. Any other reflections on Asbury? Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's like, I think it's a work of God and, um, I'm not critical of it. Uh, you know, I, you know, we call it a revival. I, that name doesn't even bother me. You know, mm. we're just using the best words we have. I don't think you can really uh, label a revival until you see the wake that uh, that is created from it. You yeah, know, the fair. the tale that comes from the revival. So it'll, it, uh, you know, I would say time only time will tell. Um, but this outpouring of the spirit, uh, it, it seems as best I can tell, authentic. And I would say. Mm firsthand as a, as a follower, I've experienced it. And I just, just was in there, you know, I I got inside and you want to experience God. And in so many ways, the desire to experience God is the distraction from actually experiencing God. (laughs) And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, God, I want more of you. You know, I want to experience you. I want to, I want to, what do I need to do? Put away my phone, open my Bible, you know? And, um, and then he was just gracious to me. And I would say we, we started singing Agnes Day and, and I got to, uh, you know, what I would say, experience God, <laughs> you know, which, and I mean that in a, in a real tangible, emotional, you know, sense, a personal sense. And so it was just something that filled my heart with, with the fruit of the spirit. 
And, uh, and so I, I was encouraged. I was encouraged by what's happening. We came back to Waco. We moved our 7 p.m. service carry to Baylor's campus. And so we met there on the lawn in Baylor and, and, um, and worshiped and prayed. And that was all student led. I said, Hey, I don't even want to be out there. I don't want to preach out there. I just want it to be of the students. And so some other pastors and I, we gathered, uh, behind it. And when I say other pastors, I mean of other churches, uh, we gathered behind it and we just prayed over those students as they were praying over that campus. Wow. And that that's something I will say, you know, to, to those in ministry that are listening, there's a beautiful thing happening in Waco where uh, we just have such a great relationship with other pastors here. And so there's not a competitive spirit. Um, we're all for each other. We're locking arms. Uh, we're, we're seeking to build the kingdom together. And that's been really fun and really refreshing. Yeah. So it feels more decentralized, a little more organic, uh, a little less produced, yeah. and perhaps a bit less structured is what yeah. I'm hearing. Yeah. yeah. All of those things are true, uh, yeah. consistent with my observations. It's, it's not the way, and even the, the sermon that Zach preached, and I'm not, I'm not here yeah. to poke fun at anyone's sermon. He said, so I talked to him. Uh, Zach this is, who, this is the guy who preached yes, leading he, he preached. into the uh, what became known as a revival, right? That's yeah. right. He preached a sermon on love and he, he had taught 18 times in two weeks prior to that. So he just said, hey, I was, I was done. I didn't have anything left in the tank. I asked the Lord for something. I got up and I, and I said what I, I sensed, where I sensed he wanted to go. And I listened to that sermon and it's not, it's not the sermon that I would have thought would have led to a revival. And, uh, and he, you know, again, I can say that he said that. I'm, I'm repeating his words too. And, uh, and it's just goes to show, man, there's <laughs> our man's wisdom only gets us so far. And, uh, and we need, we have to walk independence. You know, we have to walk independence with, with our father. I think I read online that he said that was a stinker. Like it just yeah. didn't, it to didn't work to his yeah. wife. He's like, yeah. Cause we all have that report when we're done. It's like, yeah, I shouldn't have gotten up today. Yeah. And often it's in those moments that God really uses it the most. And other times we think we've crushed it. Nothing. Nobody. Nobody's there Nothing to talk. Nobody. You know, yep. you want to run. Yeah. You want to run another lap around the bases, and and everybody's like, "All right, I'm going home." Uh -huh. Glad we went to church today. <laughs> so you got a brand new book called uh, "Why Do I Do What I Don't Want to Do?" Congratulations on the book, JP. Um, paint a picture because I think it's a really good contrast of your life before you came to Christ, after you came to Christ. So you've already mentioned growing up Roman Catholic. Uh, club scene and all that. But what was your life like prior to, uh, you know, becoming a, a pastor and no. well, first being called to faith? Yeah, I was raised in a small, on a farm in a small town in the middle of nowhere, South Texas. And then I went to a two-year uh, technical college in Waco. And so I always say I crammed, you know, a lifetime of partying into those two years. I was, I was running from God. God at this time was a kind of the sheriff in the sky that wanted to get me for doing something wrong. And I was doing a lot of things wrong. You know, they say drugs, sex, and rock and roll. In my case, it was drugs, sex, and, and hip hop. And I was at a club. And so I moved to Dallas. I graduated somehow. And I moved to Dallas. And, and now I'm in the big city and I've always wanted to be in the big city. And and I start chasing the dollar and I'm, I, I have different jobs. I, I start in the, the fitness industry. I'm selling gym memberships. I sell this guy this expensive gym membership and I just say, hey, what do you do? Because he, he spends a couple grand on a membership and I'm like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm in telecom. I was like, you know, it's funny because I've always wanted to be in telecom. <laughs> and I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And, 
And so I, I, lo and behold, I get a job in telecom. I moved my, my boss. I had some favor with my boss because I was selling. He went to another company, took me with them. That company went bankrupt and I landed uh, at AT&T and became a global account manager of AT&T. And so at this point in my life, I'm everything wrong with Dallas and a person. And so for context, Dallas is a very pretentious city. It really thrives on entrepreneurship because there's not there's not really landscape there. There's no bodies of water or mountains. Like right. you're there, you're there just to make money. And uh, so I live in a penthouse condo. I drive a Jaguar, wear a different suit every day, different watches to go with the suits. And uh, and and I'm I'm in the club on the weekend, you know, getting bottle service and and whatnot. And um, I, I somebody invites me to this church. I sat in the back row, hungover. I smelled like smoke from the night before. And I really started wrestling with who is God. Because I thought mm-hmm. if I was born in India, I'd be Hindu. If I was born in China, I'd be Buddhist. If I was born in Iran, I'd be Muslim. If I was born in Israel, I might be Jewish. And so w- what are the odds I'd be born to to the right area to, to come to the right faith? And so I had this bias against Christianity. But as I explored it, I kept tripping over this character in history named Jesus Christ that I knew of, obviously. But I, I never realized, like he had reset the calendar that 2,023 years ago, every atheist I know acknowledges him by the date on their iPhone. And I was like, man, how did this carpenter born in Bethlehem, a town I wouldn't even know of except he was born there, who lived in Nazareth, another city I wouldn't know of except he lived there, how did he become the single most polarizing character in the history of history? And I realized it's because he came back to life. He died and he came back to life. And when he died... I realized that was a payment for all the things, you know, my sexual addiction, uh, my drug use, my alcoholism, my materialism, my pretentiousness, my narcissism, all of those things. He was paying for those things so that I didn't have to pay for them in eternity. I trusted my life to him and everything began to change in that moment. I mean, it was, what is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, the gift of God. It was the gift of God. Hmm. Hmm. So big contrast. I'd love to know, once you became a Christian and particularly stepped into Christian leadership, yeah. what was the hardest vice to give up? Yeah, so when I became a believer, some of the things went, went away right away, like my language. So I, I cussed like a sailor at uh. the time, and it just like, I don't, there was just a heavy conviction on that. Uh, things like pornography uh, were slower to die. Um, yeah. Now in the in the business world, you know that that nobody cares. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like you yeah. you go to the strip club to to close deals. I mean, that was a common practice at the time, and um, you you would take people there. You'd entertain clients. Um, but in in Christianity now, it's like those things. Like people are praying for me. I'm 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 finding healing, but you're still in in corporate America. And so, Carrie, I would tell you, you know, I've been to. Now, I've been to the jungles of Africa. I've been to the jungles of, of Brazil. I mean, I've gotten on a boat, gone six days down the river to get off, you know, to a, a, a tribe that, that, you know, we were told had never heard of Christianity. I've, I've, I've been to Haiti, rural Haiti, up in the mountains, Haiti, uh, different parts of Mexico. The darkest mission field I've ever seen is in corporate America. I mean, it it just, you know, greed was so tangible there. Like everything we did was for the bottom dollar. There's no heart there. I mean, I tell people that I work with in ministry now that, that are not always professional, you know, they'll be late or something. I'm like, you you can't get away with that in corporate America because they don't care. They don't care. You know, the, the, 
the big corporation isn't concerned about your two-year-olds, you know, whatever. And, and so, um, I, I think that's the biggest one, greed, the pursuit of comfort and, and, you know, the, the game, the perception management game, yeah. the entitlement is so like you feel, oh, I mean, people would just get so upset because they felt owed something. So those are the things that are so prevalent there. How does greed show up in ministry? Because you took, like oh, a lot man. of people, a huge pay cut to go yeah. into ministry, right? You write about that. It was like a 90% pay cut. You're making a 10th of what you made in corporate yeah. almost to start. Yeah, man. Uh, I mean, I, it's not, it's just, just like in the business world, it's, it's not everywhere. I mean, there, there are people with pure and right intentions. And I would say in ministry, you know, it shouldn't be anywhere, but it still is. And I think yeah. one of the greatest yeah. evils in the world is this deal, ministry leaders strike where they're like, hey, you show up and let me entertain you and, and you keep the lights on and I won't, in exchange, I won't ask much of you. And I'm like, man, that's not the church and that's not going to work. And we're going to end up in, in a story like in Revelations, you know, Ephesus or something. And we, we can't, we can't do that. And so I think there's a, a greed, you know, we, we have a deep desire for followers today, and especially in the age yeah. of social media, we have a deep, there's a greed for people. I think we, we can focus on stealing people from other ministries. church to be growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, you know, church growth can be an idol. And then there's the, the financial greed. I mean, I, you, you see it today in the church more than I ever have. And it's not reserved to particular denominations anymore. I mean, it really has bled into every denomination where it's like, hey, if you if you are um, one of the the top leaders, um, there there should be particular privileges that go with that. Some of those are right and holy. Some of those are really ungodly and unholy. Yeah, yeah. How do you know which is which? I, I don't know that you can by yourself because we can mm-hmm. be so self-deceived and the nature of a blind spot is you can't see them. So you have to, that's the, where that transparency comes in. And so I've got to have guys in my life that they, they know what I make. They know what I give. They know what I spend. I process big buying decisions with them. Today, I texted them about a car. You know, I was like, hey, you know, I was on this waiting list for this vehicle and it, and it became available today. And I was just like, hey guys, is this still a good idea? Like, here are the specs, you know, here, here's what it costs. Here's what we, you know, here's where we're at financially right now. Is this still a good idea? Is this going to inhibit our ability to be generous? You know, how much should I be concerned about the perception? And like asking those kinds of questions of the, of those people. So I don't know that we can tell on our own. That's where I think those those dozen proverbs that say wisdom comes from the counsel of many. Everything in the scripture that's pushing us to real accountability, we have to have. We we can't be self deceived. We don't want that. Like every listener right now, there's a part of your heart that doesn't want that and you will fail. You're going to climb to the top and it's going to drop you to your death if you don't have people in your life who will tell you the truth. You have to have, and it can't be these one-off, you know, phone calls, uh, you know, in a singular text here and there. It needs to be a consistent group of people that you're meeting with on a consistent basis so that they're all hearing the same things at the same time and they're able to, to, to feed off each other's feedback and, and to learn from each other. And that'll go one step further. I think it's even better if those people are different than you. And, I, and, and so like meaning they just think different, they're wired different, you know, their, their personalities types are different. I learn the most from people who don't think like I do. And so I try to always make sure that I have, you know, that, that really structured person around me because I'm not naturally the most structured person. 
Yeah, let me ask a little bit more about that because I think that is a, a great principle. And I think you're right. We all have random friends we'll bounce stuff off of, but to have a board, so to speak. On the other hand, JP, we also live in an age where people create fake boards. You know, it's like these are the rubber stamp people. And I realize you're not talking about something structural, you're talking about something more organic. But you know, I can think of four people who would say, yeah, buy whatever car you want. And then other people who would say, oh, no, you should buy like a 10-year-old used car. Yeah. How do you go about selecting people who would be varied enough that you would get a more reflective answer and then that would still tell you the truth? Man, the person that's most valuable to me, well, I, I'm back up and I'm going to say there is a structure to it. Um, Good. So okay. I, I am talking about, you know, formalizing this. Um, I don't think these are different groups. It's a consistent group that you meet with on a consistent basis. And sure, like anybody can build this, you know, cardboard board, you know, yeah, yeah this yeah. echo chamber of yes people. Yeah. Sure, you can do that. That's not, that's going to be a complete and total waste of your time. And mm. you're going to, that's going to fall in the bucket of perception management. And there's a harsh warning for you in Acts chapter five is what I'd say. Um, but, but for me, uh, you, who is most valuable to me, I say valuable in air quotes, like meaning they're most beneficial, is someone who understands the word of God. You know, they fear God. They walk closely with God. They they yield to his spirit and it, it comes out of their life like that. You know, it's almost like I'm looking for the holiest people I can uh, to be that. And, they, and, the, and, and holy people come in, in all shapes and sizes and different backgrounds and personality types, you know? And so is wherever I can get diversity in those kinds of things, great. But for me, I want someone who walks closely with the Lord, you know? And, and some of that's going to be in, in and out of seasons. And that it, the older you get, the more you realize that is like, sometimes life kicks you in the teeth, you know? And, and, and sometimes you're on the mat and people have to carry you. Sometimes they're on the mat and you have to carry them. But I, I find those guys and then and that, then I assemble that board and we call it a life group at Harris Creek. And then those are the guys that I meet with every single week. And in fact, we meet twice a week and we're on a group text. And that's the guys that I sent that group text to is like, hey, here's the, the truck that's ready. Here's what it costs. You know, here's our situation. What should I do? You know. And is that mutual? Do you all bounce each other's yes. stuff off or is that like a personal board? That's great. That's a great question. It it is mutual, and ah. so and I and I think that's yeah that that's probably a big difference than than maybe I was I was portraying initially. Uh, it, this is not like hey they exist for me. Uh, this yeah. is we exist for each other. And so when gotcha. they're and and it's interesting because uh, not one of those guys there none of them are in vocational ministry. Now that's not by design. It's just happenstance. Ah. Uh, and so you know it it's helpful. Because I get to give them their, you know, they're building companies and selling companies and doing business and consulting and all those things. And I get to speak into that sometimes too, which is, which is fun. Oh, interesting. It sounds a little bit like what John Mark Comer has done in creating a little uh, council or group for himself. So you, um, I, I would say, you know, here's another tough personal question. Of all the vices that linger to this day, do you have a particular vice that's still like, oh, this one's still nipping at my heels? 
Yeah. Uh, it may be a good idea to list the the seven deadly vi- uh, vices that you talk about, pride being the biggest, but then you list six others. <laughs> then you've also got modern incarnations that I want to drill down into. Yeah, so if if I walk you through the progression of my life, like so yeah. uh, initially when I became a believer, kind of go back to the question you asked earlier, yeah. initially like lust is the, is the one that was, um, that lingered. And you was was a pitfall that that I would um, be constantly and consistently tempted to fall into. Mm. As I as I kind of progressed in corporate America, and I had people praying over me in in that area, then it became materialism. I, th- I feel like I got sure. swept up in the current of Dallas, which is really just the current of our world. And I wanted you know trinkets and treasures and stuff and status and and all of that. I felt like materialism. Well, as I, I continued to, you know, then went into ministry and, and, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there was different, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, different things would pop up, yeah. you know, at different times. And, uh, you know, pride, I think is, is one is, as people start to, to listen to you, you know, and they say, oh, well, now we're going to give you a microphone and we want you to talk to us and tell us what to do. And it's like, oh, wow, it's so easy to get puffed up and ego has taken out many a pastor and I think what's interesting, though, as I have thought about it and reflected in, in creating this resource, is sometimes it's like whack-a-mole, man, in seasons. And yeah. it can be just like, oh, this this one shows up. And so in the book, you know, we kind of talk about the the, um, the ancient battles, as you mentioned, and then the modern, the modern wars. And so uh, in, in list form, um, it's, you know, pride, anger, greed apathy and lust. Those are the ancients. And then the modern ones are perception management entitled busyness, drunkenness, and cynicism. And so they all have counterpart virtues. So if those are vices in the vice category, they have counterpart virtues. And the reason I think that's important, and I know your audience is predominantly leaders, is a lot of times, you know, in as leaders, we talk about competency, but I think most of us would agree that character is is even more important that mm-hmm. that the, the any competency has to be built on a solid foundation of character, and when you're talking about competency, it was Marcus Buckingham I first heard. You know, put your strengths to work. Don't focus so much on your weaknesses. Focus on what you're great at and build a career and opportunities out of what you're great at. Well, what if the character aspect is similar? I think in the church we can focus so much on the don'ts. Uh, so don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. But what if we focused on the do's and we said, mm. I like do become this, grow this in your life, focus on growing this. So in, in like lust, instead of fighting lust, if I grow self-control and instead of fighting greed, if I grow generosity, you know, what does it look like for me to become a bigger giver uh, and, and more generous with those around me? And rather than focus on, you know, the defense, I go on offense and I live the abundant life that Jesus calls me to. And I think that is transferable to any work organization, whether it's in ministry or in the corporate world for leaders, because anyone who leads teams, you want to make sure your team is, they're all practicing character. Otherwise, you know, any one of them could sink the ship. And yeah. and as we're training up those leaders, I think this has been an effective way is like, all right, hey, focus on the virtue. What is the what is the counterpart virtue to the vice that we can pursue and grow in the virtue? So greed is generosity, right? As right. Uh, a virtue. That's right. And so, you know, the more generous you become, the less greedy you become. I find that too. I, I like to write checks that hurt. 
Do you sure. know what I mean? I Absolutely. don't write checks anymore, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know what Whatever, you mean. digitally, digitally. Swipes, I yeah. like to transfer money that hurts. Sure. And uh, I think that's a really good antidote. And then live considerably below means. That's uh, right. Is good. Anything else on greed that you want to touch on? I mean, it, it's it's just uh, it's another form of lust. You know, we always it think is. of lust in yeah. in the sexual sense, but it's it's wanting things that you don't have. And man, it feeds discontentment. And um, and so we talk about entitlement in the book, which again, they, these they, these are kind of like a really complex Venn diagram. They all have overlaps. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it, the opposite of entitlement is gratitude. And I say gratitude turns what you have into enough, uh, which mm-hmm. is also a way to combat greed. And so I'm not I'm not just wanting to present to you and, and rub, rub the reader's nose in their struggles. I'm wanting to give you a solution for each of these struggles, which I think is actually a pretty comprehensive list. Meaning what I've learned in, in 16 years of ministry, and I'm curious if you agree, is it's not really a long list of things that take people out. It, it no. really is a, it's a smaller list of things. It's like, hey, if, if, you, if you're going to self-destruct, it's probably going to be one of these 10 things. And, uh, and so if yeah. we can, if that's true, man, then identifying those 10 things, understanding which one I'm most susceptible to, that's invaluable to finishing the race, which we all want to finish the race. You know, none of us want to self-destruct. I agree. I think the big three and your 10 are uh, subsidiaries of it. Uh, sex, money, and power. It's sex, yeah. money, and power. It's always, it's always like something sexual that's completely inappropriate, non-consensual. Yep. It's money. You took stuff that didn't belong to you. You took too much. You were unfair. You were not transparent. Or it was uh, power, right? Abuse of power, bullying, uh, absorption of power, uh, lack of accountability. It's sex, money, power, sex, money, power. And you're right. You know, I've done a million funerals. I think I wrote about this and didn't see it coming. But when someone's lying in a casket or you've got their ashes in an urn and the family's gathered around, Nobody pulls out a resume. Everyone yeah. talks about your character. Yeah. And sometimes they lie about it. Oh, he's a really good guy. No, sometimes, you know, you meet with families and it's like, no, dad was a jerk. Or yeah. he really blew it when he cheated on mom. That destroyed our family. Or yeah. he was selfish. <laughs> you know, yeah. you hear these stories. And then you got to make up some sanitized version, a sanitized version of the truth as you can for the funeral service. But like, that's all your kids are going to care about. That's a, And at the end of the day, all these people who follow you, follow me, they're not going to be at our funeral. That's right. No, my they're not going to be at my funeral. My yeah. kids are going to be at my funeral. My friends are going to be at my funeral. The community I've been a part of for 25 years is going to be at my funeral. All the other yeah. stuff, that's all going away. Yeah. Man, that ministers to me, bud, for such a time as this. Thank you. (laughs) So uh, you do talk about rest and burnout, which is a really personal subject for me. Sure. Uh, Tell tell us your thoughts on rest and burnout in leadership. Well, I've learned a lot from you. I will say that. (laughs) Uh, And... I think that, and, 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 you know, we, we can disagree on some of these things or have a, have a great discussion on them. I think that burnout often comes not from doing too many things, like doing too much, but doing too much of the things you weren't made to do. 
And oh, uh, you know, yes. one of the, one of the things I learned from you is even like when you do it matters, like the the mm. the, the time of day and when you have the most energy. And so I've I've, I've learned a lot of that just from the how, resources. How did that play that out in your life? I'm curious. I've, I'm always a student when someone applies that principle. Like, you, you know, uh, it's it's um my my best thinking comes at night. And oh, so, you're a night owl. Yeah, and so um, I just feel like my brain gets really active when the sun gets down, goes down. And so it's, it's changing seasons, Carrie, because right now we have little ones in the house. I say little students and basketball practices and baseball practices. And so, uh, I've, and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out, and I'm in the season where I'm really, I've been thinking a lot about this, even this week is how do I make sure they get my best, you know, which is another thing that you've addressed through the years. And so like, what does it look like for me to make sure that I don't just deplete all of my energy in, in the professional environment and come home and give them the scraps. And so, uh, I've, I've always, you know, or on my best days, I'll take time to transition in the car just to stop for a minute, think. And, uh, and, and I notice times where I get home and I'm on a call, you know, and I have to go and my kids are at the window waiting for me to get off the call that, that those, those days don't go as well as when I have uh-huh. that transition period, you know, to move into that. And so the, the other thing is it's, it's not early morning, but morning kind of that 10 a.m is a really productive time for me. And so that's something just in auditing what you created. And so I try to put meetings drain me a ton. And um, same. Yeah. And so I try to, you know, strategically place those in, in the right times of the day and, and um, have the, have the more fun, engaging, creative um, meetings at that, that 10 a.m. slot. So. You're a go, 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 go guy. Have you had a period of burnout in your life or if sure. not, how have you avoided it? Yeah, four, five, six. I was going to uh, seven years ago, six or seven yeah. years ago. I mean, I hit a wall at a hundred miles an hour, for sure. I mean, that's why. That's why I know you. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like you're desperate for resources. If people are like recarry, uh, sure, man. I mean, it, I, you know, all, all of the things. I was. Uh, I had just written a book. I was. Um, I was. Uh, you know, started speaking. So I always, I had this job that I always had, which was just working for the church, just right. working for the church. Now I'm an author and now I'm a speaker and I'm trying to manage all of that. Plus, you know, our kids are at a, at a busy age and marriage and all of those things at once. It was just like, mm-hmm. I, I was carrying a load that I wasn't strong enough to carry. And everyone, you know, all my professional life, people said, oh, he's so high capacity, he's high capacity, he's high capacity. Felt like my capacity got cut and there was like an eighth of it left and where one day I could carry, you know, a, a hundred pounds, you know, the next, the next day I, I could carry just, just much, you know, significantly less. And um, I, I couldn't sleep, panic attacks, anxiety. I had taught on anxiety, um, but, <laughs> but in hindsight, I had really, I was really teaching on worry because this, this thing was a whole different animal. And, um, and my heart started skipping beats, literally, like, like physically I messed up my heart. And so I had to go yeah. to the hospital and I was just like, I, I remember sitting there. It's like, man, something is wrong with me. And they they hooked me up to this EKG machine, and they're measuring my heart. And they say, yeah, you know, there's some PVCs and PACs, premature ventricular contractions. And I'm like, can you fix it? And this this ER doctor looks at me and she says, no, but you can. <laughs> and uh, wow. and I'm like, well, what do I got to do? And she's like, a whole lot less than what you're currently doing, you know. And I'm like, okay, you know, and so that was a big, big wake up call. I mean, I, I was, man, I was, uh, 30, 36 years old and I, I was driving wow. down the road 
my left arm went completely numb and I thought I was having a heart attack. And I was like, this is it, man. I don't get to walk the girls down the aisle. Like I'm, I'm donezo. And it was all related to that. It's amazing. You know, that whole line you said about everyone said you're super high capacity. And that's the thing about burnout is you're super high capacity until the day you're not. Yeah. And it gets taken away from you. And it sounds like we had very parallel experiences almost overnight went from, you know, 60 to zero. And what, what have you done in the last six years to guard against that? Because it's not like you're carrying less. You could argue you're probably carrying more, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, well, you should have told me we were going to talk about this, Carrie. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just playing. Uh, I, um, I love it, man. I do. I, in part, and honestly, I moved to Waco, Texas, and yeah. I, I, I took over a church of 400. The first time I taught here, Carrie was, you know, there were 425 people here. And well, that so that was easy, but it yeah, lasted I mean, it about a, four minutes. And so. everyone, and everyone said, and everyone said, um, man, I bet you don't miss the traffic in Dallas. And I thought, man, there's no, I don't remember traffic in Dallas. I mean, I lived, you know, two miles from the church and I just, yeah. I never really remember complaining about the traffic. I drive back into Dallas today and hyperventilate. I'm like, where did these people come from? You know? And so there was just something to changing the pace. Um, I, mm-hmm. I removed responsibilities uh, I, I became very okay at letting people down. Um, there was mm-hmm. something for a long time where I just didn't want to let anyone down. And, um, and I was, I mean, I, I remember in, in the middle of all of this, I'm preaching at Saddleback and they're in this, some kind of heroes series, heroes of the faith, I think. And the guy goes up and he's like, man, that guy, like he was talking about me and said some kind things. And he was like, he, he's Superman. He looks like Superman, like the, uh, the person who was doing announcements. And I just, you know what? I am not Superman. (laughs) That's what you Uh need to know is I'm a chump from Quero, Texas with an associate's degree in art from a college you've never heard of. And I'm a servant of Jesus and man, I am going to let you down. I'm going to say the wrong things. I'm going to do the wrong things. I'm not going to get things done. I'm not going to get things done on time. And I'm going to be as excellent as I can. I know excellence honors God. I know it inspires people, but I'm going to be as excellent as I can. And then I'm going to sleep well at night. And, uh, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to live for first and foremost, Jesus Christ. And then I'm going to live for the people that are going to be there at that funeral. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you're not even in the, in the running of, of people that might carry that box that I'm in forever, or at least my body's in, then, you know, I'm not, I'm, it's, I'm going to be okay disappointing you. And that's got to be okay. Um, you also talk about margin. I'd love your take on margin. Yeah. Margin is helpful right and it's and it's like uh it's kind of the 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 yeah of course like if i have space to do whatever i want like that is absolutely going to be beneficial there's just some seasons where it's not realistic and so i say you know under the banner of letting people down is you have to there has to be a list of priorities so where i find myself and where margin is difficult is there's always more to do than time Yeah. You know, and so it's like, it's like the margin I have is not real. I mean, if I can create time and space for myself and to myself, 
but I'm, I'm really just delaying things that I need to do because they're, they're not going away. They're still there. And there's always more to do than time. And so then I have to say, all right, what are my priorities? And, um, and, and that's been helpful to me is to think in terms of priorities rather than margin. What are my priorities and what am I, what am I okay not getting done today so that I can run at a sustainable pace? You know, it's challenging. We're in the process of hiring an EA uh, for me. And in the interview, I just said, basically, you're going to be saying no all day long. Like, that's yeah. the hard part. We have that's so right. much inbound. Uh, how do you feel about that? And we want you to do it in a really thoughtful way, not that's in right. a sorry, but like, yeah. you know, and the person we're looking at is super compassionate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's a part of me too that 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 is still hard. Is it yeah. still hard for you to let people down to say no? I've got an email in my inbox now that I got to go back and say, yeah. I just don't have time to connect. I'm not going to make the time. Man, I don't know why it is so hard. It is so it is. hard. But I think even that is is there has to be a prioritization. And you do. I think one of you know as your leadership quotient grows, you you get really good at the at the short form email you know, the, the response that expresses yeah. the heart that I really want to be able to do this. I just can't. And I'm yeah. sorry. And man, thank you for understanding. Um, but yeah, it's still very hard. Yeah, it is tough. But you know what? I intentionally build margin into my calendar now. Yesterday morning, a great example. I had nothing on the clock for the first six hours. And I'm like, oh, good. I can stretch. I can imagine. But inevitably, crises come in. And I had a call from a guy that I coach and he's like, I got a meeting in an hour and blah, blah, blah. And again, I, I coach like two people. So it's so yeah. small, right? Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, oh, I got time for that. But if you're, if you're scheduled to the wall, you don't have time for that stuff. Yeah, I mean, that, that's yeah. the challenge that I've, I find with margin is there's always something competing for it. And mm -hmm. so I have to think in terms of priorities. So uh, I've seen pride take out a lot of leaders. You've sure. seen it, you write about it. Uh, it's a daily struggle for me, trying not to take credit for the things that God is doing in my life or through yeah. our ministry or whatever. Uh, how do you spot pride and what do you do to tackle it? Yeah, when I think in terms, of, and I don't, I don't know if this is what you mean, when you say spot it, it's almost like, how do you see it when it shows up? And, um, and, I, yeah. and I, I would say it's always there. That's the mm -hmm. thing for any leader, like for anyone with responsibilities, pride is always there. You just have to identify it and keep it in check. And, and the biggest time, you know, it's, it's when you don't realize it's there, it's when you stop thinking about it being there. Yeah. That's when it gets you, man. I mean, that it's the, that's when you're short in the, in the meeting. That's when you respond out of anger. That's when you cope in one of those ways. That's, that's not above reproach. Mm -hmm. That's, those are the ditches. And, uh, and so I think it's like, okay, how do I, how do I, I know that it's there. How do I find where it is? Cause it's already there. It's not, it's not going to just, it's not that it just pops up and I need to, I it's like, okay, it's there. Where is it there right now? And, and how do I manage that? And so for me, again, back to those guys, that board of directors community, that life group, I'm meeting with them on a consistent basis. They're not impressed with me, Carrie. Like they, you know, they don't, they don't care. And in some ways I'm just a, uh, in some ways I am a burden to them in, in, <laughs> you know, because of what I do. And, and so they, they're quick to show me where it is. My wife is also such a gift to me in that way. You know, she, she's very humble and she's just hmm. such an agent of grace to me. And she's quick to say, Hey, I don't, I don't think that's your best moment in, in the way that you just, 
responded to to one of our kids or in in what you said from the stage like hey i would i would tweak that i would change that um or even asking me better questions like hey what's going on in your heart right now that that's how that's coming out because out of the heart the mouth speaks and so you've got to have people in your life uh, you know the woe to the man who falls and no one's there to pick him up you know yeah. solomon says you have to have those folks that will help you identify it. And then so many of our other responses are just symptoms out of pride. Like I said, when, we, when we're short in anger, when we're seeking vengeance, when we're fantasizing vengeance in our head, uh, when we're wanting to buy something uh, that we can't afford or shouldn't buy because it's just going to feed a materialistic heart. So much of that is just coping for this age-old struggle uh, of pride. C.S. Lewis says pride is the, the, the sin that made the devil the devil. And uh, I think it sits underneath all of our other struggles, all of our other habits. And we've got to know that it's there and we've got to find out where it is in that particular season in that day. I'm so glad you talked about perception management too. Um, I'm not sure our parents really thought a lot about perception management. If you made a mistake, you apologized to the person you made the mistake to and you moved on with your life. And now, you know, social media has amplified it to the point where you say one thing slightly the wrong way and it blows up online or you got thousands of people following you and they're like, ah, you know. And so there can be a real tendency to want to manage your image. Um, What do you have to say to leaders about perception management? I think it's one of the greatest evils in the church today. Uh And um, if you look in... Acts, the Acts of the Apostles in the scriptures, you're seeing miracles and massive gatherings and momentum. If I was to say in one word, you see momentum. 4,000 people were saved, 5,000 people were saved. You know, Peter preaches the gospel and this happened. It's just momentum, 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 momentum. And then you have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and Barnabas has just sold the field and he brings the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And then this couple, they see him get all of this praise and, and accolades. And they say, man, we want that. And we, we want, we want the, that praise. And so let's, let's sell a field and bring the money at the Apostles' Peach. If he, at least we're going to make it look like that's what we did when really we're going to withhold some money back. And so they lie out of a desire of, of managing perception. And what you see in the scripture is this massive halt like all things come to a screeching stop. And speaking of funerals, they both die right there. And it is the harshest warning. It's like God is saying something to us like, hey guys, don't play this game, okay? Mm-hmm. So you might get canceled for being real, but but we, <laughs> we, we're called Christians. Like, like at the, like, like little Christ, that that's what we are. Like we're, we're little Jesus, like Jesus got canceled in the most heinous way on the side of a road, nailed to two pieces of wood to his death, you know? And so it's like, we shouldn't be confused when people are, are upset at us when we're transparently following Jesus. And so, man, I, um, and you, you mentioned parenting and, and I spent, you know, I spent over a decade with the results of parenting, uh, meaning like young, <laughs> young adults, yeah, young yeah, adult t- ministry, tens yeah. of thousands of young adults. I had a front row seat of watching their lives and, and, you know, so much of ministry is pattern recognition. And 
And I can just tell you the the parents that that were authentic, like they made disciples. The parents mm-hmm. that were like, hey, we're going to go to church on Sunday and, and kids will know what's going on. Like, you know, they'll read between the lines. Oh, we're playing a game. Oh, we want, wow. we want to show them. We want, we want them to think that we're spiritual. But when we go to, when we go to lunch afterwards, no one's sharing the gospel with the server. No, no, we're not really inviting other people to our table. We're not sharing our home and our resources. Like those, the kids that came out of homes where the parents did that, they were just different, Carrie, to a person. Like it was a, one of the clearest patterns. Parents who lived out their faith authentically, their children were drawn to that faith and lived it out authentically. Parents that were managing perception around faith, they raised kids who deconstructed, left the faith, went somewhere else. I'm not, I'm not trying to shame anyone because there's no, always no, no, hope. There's always hope and, and, and hope for prodigals. And I was a prodigal, you know, and, and, and we take way too much, um, we take ma- way too much credit when our kids turn out good and, and way too much responsibility when they don't. But I, I'll just say this thing, this perception management thing is serious and we need to take it serious and we need to, we need to stop it if we're, if we're in, involved in it. So what would you say to the leader who is very carefully curating an image managing perceptions, trying to make sure that they come across in a certain way. Because I see that online every day. What's the answer? Just like, yeah, what's the answer? The outcome that you want, that your desired outcome, it's it's not sustainable. And -hmm. there's a way to get it faster. But there are risks. And so here's what I mean. You can manage perception and you can build an empire, but you can't do it forever. And the empire is going to come crashing down. And when it does, it's going to be loud. But if you just, instead of doing that, be who you are authentically, um, people are going to be drawn to that authenticity. Certainly the next generation is going to be drawn to that authenticity. At times you're going to be misunderstood. Leadership is a commitment to being misunderstood. Yes. At times you're going to be misunderstood. At times, you know, they're going to say you were too honest. Um, that, that's all going to happen. Those are the problems you choose with this path, but it's obedience. And then I'll just say also, I'm, I'm, and I'm in some ways, this is a contradiction to what I just said, but you can't determine obedience by the outcome. And so I'll say two things. I'll say it works, good. but even if it doesn't work, <laughs> it's still the right thing to do. So it, it just yeah. so happens that it does work. It is strategic. But even if it didn't, don't sell out. You know, don't, you know, what does it forfeit a man to, to, to what does it profit a person to, you know, gain the whole world and forfeit their soul, you know? Yeah. I think the thing I get asked that question a lot about, you know, how do you build a platform online? And I think, you know, one of the pieces of advice I always give, I don't want to quote Oscar Wilde too much, but be yourself. Everyone else is taken. And there's a joy at this stage in life to be able to choose what I do to have me just show up and do these conversations. Like there's not really a gap between public and private. You Mm -hmm. get a good view into my life if you follow me on Instagram. And that's sort of what you get. And maybe I could be better if I was carefully marketed and sculpted or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there it also helps you sleep at night. So yeah. I think that's a very, I'm glad you went there. Anything else you want to cover or say yeah. that we haven't talked about? 
Yeah, I would say to the person who's asking, you know, how do I build the platform online? I would say, be careful what you, what you wish for. Um, and, and make sure that that's not just the end desire, you know, that it's, that it is something significant and share it. Maybe you get a platform, maybe you don't. Well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the person who says, I want to be rich because I want to give away, I want to give away all the money. And I'm like, well, (laughs) you don't want to be rich. You want to be poor. You know, that's, that's what Mm -hmm. happens when you get, have a lot of money and you give it away, you're left with none. And so it's like the person is giving now. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it, and the same thing is, is true of followers. Like, how are you faithful with your followers now? And I think what I'm yeah. getting at, Carrie, is I'm, I'm seeing something really interesting in, in the world of social media. And, and you and I heard somebody say this, and I, and I was like, man, that's so true. Um, where it's like, if you just, if you champion a camp, you can grow followers really fast. Oh, yeah. And so what's harder to do is to stay true to who you are and, and to stay honest and, and to not operate in the motive of wanting to gain followers. Because I think what can happen when we do that is we further the division that we see in society. The yeah. gap just gets wider and wider and wider and wider. Uh, some of the, the biggest, like the, the days of, if we're just talking numbers, like the days of my biggest growth and followers ha- have been when my critics have been the loudest. Because, huh. you know, people who are critical of them will just run over here and say, oh, I'm, I'm on his side and I don't appreciate it because I know that it creates more and more division. And I don't, I don't want division, you know, I want well, peace and unity. And if they found you in a fight, they'll probably leave you in a fight. Man, they, hey, tweet that out, guys. They find you <laughs> in a fight, they'll leave you in a I fight. Mean, okay, that was just leading a church for 20 years. But you know this, if they've been to three churches in the last five years and they come yeah. to you and you're the best thing since sliced bread, guess what? Matter of Dude, time. Six months later, they're out the door. And I, I think that is such a good word. And it's weird. I've had more people tell me in the last year, oh, if you did that, you'd get a lot of clicks. And my immediate reaction is, I don't want those kind of clicks. Like I don't, I'm not going to stir up controversy for the sake of stirring up controversy because I don't want that quality, that kind of leader in, I mean, everybody's welcome here, but like, you know, I'm not out to build a uh, platform on what I'm against or, uh, you know, the siege mentality. It's like, let's just have honest, normal conversations and try to go from there. And, And believe it or not, just an encouragement to those of you who are wondering, you know, listening, wondering like, yeah, sometimes it works. Sometimes you can actually build an audience, just being you and trying to make a contribution and a dent in the universe. And, you know, in your case, trying to reach people in Waco, particularly young adults, in my case, trying to help leaders along the way, like, it's okay, just relax, man. It's, it's going to work out. There's such a weird thing happening right now where everybody sees the world through a, through a really narrow lens. And so I do something on Friday, Friday Q and A will answer questions and and um, the other day, someone said, "Why do you think Taylor Swift is is hated by so many people?" And I and I thought, what an ironic question because I would think Taylor Swift is one of the most beloved human beings loved on the planet Earth in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, like she's loved by more people. And I just like I was like, oh, their perception is that she's hated because of whatever echo chamber they're in. You know what what they're looking viewing the world through, and that's how we see it. Is just like as as things 
get more bifurcated, the camps get bigger. And it's like, you just, you see people, you see the side that you want to see. And you, we rarely go around and see the other side. And it's, it's, it's an interesting science experiment, this social media thing. Oh, it's hard to build yourself up long-term by tearing other people down. I learned sure. that years ago and it's just, it's not fun. Well, the book is great. It's called why do I do what I don't want to do? Uh, replace deadly vices with life-giving virtues. Uh, JP, thank you so much. I appreciate your friendship. appreciate your leadership. Uh, books available where anybody can buy a book these days, but where do they find you? Yeah, at jpacluda is my handle most places. And um, it's just my the first letter of my first name and my last name. And then jonathanpacluda.com. I don't, I don't love that being the website, but it's helpful to people. So... Everybody calls you JP, right? Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. JP, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brett Carey. You are a leader of leaders and I'm grateful for you. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hanging out again next time. Yes, man. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. He's always a fascinating conversation. We got more in the show notes for you. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 566. And that's free. We got transcripts there. We've got keynotes and links to everything that we talked about. I'm going to tell you who's coming up on the podcast. Plus, I got a free offer for you. But first, check out today's partner. They're the reason we can bring this to you for free. The reason why from time to time I can fly all over the country and interview people and, uh, well, bring you the YouTube channel and this show. Glue has got a free texting service for you. Go to get.glue.us slash texting and get a 90% open rate starting today and go to ServeHQ. Uh, you can go to ServeHQ.church and I talk to leaders. There's a volunteer crisis if you want to solve it. ServeHQ is in your corner. Go to ServeHQ.church. Well, next episode, I was so excited. I loved his book, Unreasonable Hospitality. I loved the show he did called The Big Brunch with Dan Levy. I absolutely loved hearing about how he built the number one restaurant in the world. His name, Will Gadara, and he is the former owner of 11 Madison Park, which was ranked the number one restaurant in the world. We talk all about hospitality. Here's an excerpt. I noticed absolutely everything. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse, for sure. <laughs> I, I feel unsettled in an environment that isn't perfect or as close to it as humanly possible. Um, and so, I mean, when you're trying to have all of the Michelin stars on the four, I mean, that's just a strength, right? Because mm -hmm. everything needs to be at a certain level of excellence in order to even play the game. And if you want to get to the top of it, you need to be at the highest level of excellence. I actually don't believe that being obsessive in pursuit of details and excellence is a weakness. I don't think it... It only becomes a weakness if you're not matching your level of obsession to the details with a similarly obsessive pursuit of hospitality. And speaking of competitive advantages, I really think that having spectacular customer service, it's such low-hanging fruit. Nobody does it well. That's why I'm really pumped about next episode. Also coming up, Gretchen Rubin. We've got Mark Batterson, uh, J.D. Greer. Really excited for that. Had a great conversation with Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller. Who else have we got? Horst Schultze, Seth Godin. Uh, we got Paula Ferris, Kevin Kelly, 
Chelsea and Judah Smith, and a whole lot more. And you can subscribe. You get it all for free. And I want to give you a free resource before we tap out today. You know how challenging it can be to keep growth and momentum going in your church. Every church leader faces obstacles, and I want to help you scale them. So I've developed a free church leader toolkit. It's a set of free videos and practical guides that will help you overcome the number one barrier to growing your church. It'll help you find and keep great leaders, even if you think, hey, I don't have any. Give it a chance. It's free. And it'll assess your outreach efforts. There's a whole lot more in it. I've drawn from decades of experience in church growth, what I've learned from the world's top leaders in business and the church world. And you can access the Church Leader Toolkit completely free. Here's what you need to do. Go to churchleadertoolkit.com. Again, that's churchleadertoolkit.com. I'll send you a copy right away. Man, whatever you're doing today, thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Share this episode with a friend. We'll catch you next time on the podcast. And I hope our conversation today has helped you identify and scale the next growth barrier you're facing.